Strasvity. Hello and welcome to City Break St Petersburg, episode one, the introduction in which I'm hoping to give just a little bit of context, geographical, historical, that sort of thing, and a rundown of what they'll be in all the episodes to come, hopefully to whet your appetite for a visit to this amazing city that was, let's face it, a muddy swamp 300 years ago, or just slightly more than that, but where one man's vision, Peter the Great, took a look round, looked at Sweden across the water that he wanted to remind of his great power and force and energy, and decided that yes, there, where it didn't look likely at all, he would build a city, a city which turned into that magnificent collection of canals and bridges and squares and avenues and extravagant palaces that we know today. OK, let's start with the geography then. I suppose every city is defined by its geography, but surely none more so than St Petersburg, which defines itself as being the most northerly major city in the entire world, and which, we have to note, is only seven degrees south of the Arctic Circle. It sits, of course, on the coast of Russia, with the whole of Russia behind it, if you will, and facing the Gulf of Finland, looking across the water to Finland and the rest of Scandinavia, and in a southerly direction then, you've got countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. This spot chosen by Peter to found his city, I've seen described as, quote, a desolate swamp in the Lonely Planet, and I also found a nice description of it by a traveller called H. Storch, who wrote Picture of Petersburg, which was published in 1801, and wrote the following. On the marshy shores of the Gulf of Finland, under an inhospitable sky, buried in fogs and snow, stood a miserable village. At the command of a prince, this rude and savage spot is converted into a receptacle of the arts, the residence of his majesty. And so, of course, one of the first questions that needs answering is why here? Why did Peter look at that particular patch of mud and think, that's the place? I think the main reason was because it looked out towards Sweden. he just defeated Sweden in a battle. And I saw a nice description of this by someone called the Marquis of Custine, who was writing in the 19th century, and who opined that St. Petersburg was, quote, a city built rather against Sweden than for Russia. So this idea that it would sit on the coastline and defy anyone to come near it. And of course, the other reason why Peter chose this particular spot on the coast is because it's the mouth of the River Neva. Every city is better off for a river, and the Neva was going to be St. Petersburg's. It's actually only 46 miles long, flows down to the city from the enormous Lake Lagoda in the north, and flows into the delta, which is made up of actually more than a 100 islands. And the river itself shapes the city, because just as it arrives at the coast, it splits into two. The big half is called the Bolshea Neva, I think Bolshea means big or great, and the small half is called the Malaya Neva. And between the two is something called Vasilyevsky Island, which is, of course, very much part of the city. So we're talking a very man-made city, a huge wide avenue, the Nevsky Prospect, was built pretty much straight away from the coast down through what was going to be the centre of the city. And then up around that grew the pattern of canals and bridges and little roads that we know today. It was built in a massive hurry and BBC journalist William Gerhardy was heard to say the following in a documentary on the city broadcast in 1953. He talked about how the early city took shape and said, quote, At first, it was a town of prim Hanseatic architecture, with a few Byzantine churches of gold onion-shaped domes thrown in for good measure. But when the female line came to the throne, it took on a southern Italian magnificence. 
I think Gerhard is referring there particularly to the work of the Italian architect Bartolomeo Rastrelli, who was a great favourite of the Empress Elizabeth and whom she commissioned to do much of the designing. So, the shape of the city today then. If you picture a T-junction to start with, think of one half of that as being the embankment, so along the river, the Nevsky, and then cutting that at right angles, the Nevsky Prospect. You've got the basic outline of the city. So let's start by talking about those two things. The embankment, I think a very good idea for a first morning activity in St. Petersburg, would be a wander along the embankment. If you start at St. Isaac's Cathedral, walk past the great bronze horseman statue, which is a statue of Peter the Great looking out over to sea, and go past the Winter Palace and Palace Square, the Winter Palace of course being now the Hermitage Art Gallery, and right up to the Summer Palace and the Summer Gardens. And while you're doing that, strolling, you can look to your left over the River Neva to Vasilyevsky Island and Petrograd. And what you'll probably notice first and foremost there is the tall golden spire of one of the city's other main cathedrals, the Cathedral of St. Peter and St. Paul. Another good walk to do then would be from the river down Nevsky Prospect. You probably won't want to walk the whole lot. It's about three miles long, ending up at the other end in the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, in whose cemetery some of the most famous people from the city are buried. But at the river end, or not too far from the river end, 10 or 15 minutes walk, you can see, apart from all the shops, and yes, they do include Zara and Starbucks and other Western imports, but apart from all of that, two things you'll definitely notice, one on the right and one on the left, more or less opposite each other, are the Church of Our Lady of Kazan and the Church on the Spilled Blood. The Church on the Spilled Blood actually is set back a little way. It's not directly on the road, but you can see it from the Nevsky Prospect. So then you've done both bits of the tea, if you like, and you've seen the main walks in the city. Just to add a little bit more detail to the map, perhaps the third thing to imagine then is the Fontanka Canal, which loops round, both ends of it flow into the Neva, It's about four miles long in total and it loops down in a semicircle and it did form in fact the original border of the city which means of course that the very historic old city is within that canal. So once you've finished your two walks a boat trip along that canal is another good way to just get your bearings and see what's what. And inside that loop there'll be districts whose names you'll come to know when you listen to the podcast to come. Districts like Seneya, which was the 19th century haunt of authors like Gogol and Dostoevsky, described by both of them in some of their novels. Another area you might have heard of already is the Mariinsky area. That's theatre land, of course, and centres around the world-famous Mariinsky Theatre. So then, the rest of the city is just this little lacy network of roads and canals and over 800 bridges. And just while we're talking about the city itself, if you're going to learn any Russian at all, four words which are very handy when you're looking at maps would be the word prospect, which we've already heard. That's a word for a wide road, an avenue, if you like. And the word ulitsa, which is an ordinary street. And then two other words that you'll see a lot. Most, M-O-S-T, that's the word for bridge. And as I just mentioned, I think there are 800 of those. And the word ploshchad strange word that means square and you'll notice that dotted all over the map as well. Okay, still thinking about the geography, I wanted to just mention outside the city a couple of areas that if you're there for any length of time at all you'll probably visit and that would be Peterhof, Peter the Great's magnificent summer palace. Not the small one he built in the city itself but the massive grandiose impressive one 
that he built some, I think, 15 miles or so outside the city centre. And the other area that you probably want to go to is somewhere called Pushkin. So it's a village or an area named after the writer Alexander Pushkin. It used to be called Sarskozelo, so named a village named after the Tsars, if you like. But once the Tsars fell out of favour, it was decided to rename it and they hit on the idea of Pushkin. And the reason you probably want to go out there is mainly because it's the site of the other fabulous summer palace known as the Catherine Palace. But actually also just next door is the Alexander Palace, which I personally found very much a draw because I knew that it had been the last family home of the doomed Nicholas II, the last emperor, the last Romanov, and his wife Alexandra, and their four lovely daughters and son, the Tsarevich Alexei. So all of that is out at Pushkin. I think you have to say that St Petersburg, again, more than most other cities, is very much defined by its weather, most of all, of course, by its winter. This is a city that's icebound for four months of the year, a city where the idea of the freeze and the thaw so defined everything that right up until the revolution there was an annual ceremony to celebrate the cracking of the ice when the thaw was gradually arriving. The commander of the Peter and Paul fortress would go down to the river and scoop some water into a silver goblet, this only being possible now that the ice was beginning to crack, and the goblet would be duly conveyed to the Tsar and presented to him, and sent back, I think, usually empty of water and full of jewels as a sort of sign of celebration that the shipping season was getting underway again. So in the winter then, very much a city of a frozen river, frozen canals, heavy snows, what I saw described somewhere as, quote, the tyranny of the cold and much talk about coats and boots and furs and gloves and scarves and covering up generally and not going out unless you have to. The composer Prokofiev wrote a little paragraph about this in 1927. He was describing being dragged along on his sledge and wrote the following. I kept my fingers and toes moving and pulled at my brow, lips and cheeks. Keeping everything in motion warms the parts of the body liable to get frostbitten. A bit later on, he wrote that the, quote, shock and cold of the frost helped cleanse my mind of all the sounds I'd been exposed to during the day. The transfer from winter into the beginning of spring is beautifully described in Helen Dunmore's novel, The Siege. The opening page has the paragraph as follows. Under the trees around the Admiralty, lakes of spongy ice turned grey. There was a slush everywhere and a raw, dirty wind off the Neva. There was a frost, a thaw another frost. So this idea that it doesn't start straight away, it's promised and it's coming and everybody knows it's coming but it takes a while. Then in a paragraph a little bit later on she writes, the lime trees, bare branches, were spiked by the glitter of sunlight and birdsong. The birds had no doubts at all. They sang out loudly and certainly into the still frozen world. They knew that winter was on the move. And then, of course, after the endless winter with the very long dark days, I think the shortest day is five hours and 52 minutes long, I read somewhere. The longest day, on the other hand, is nearly 19 hours long. So that massive contrast is something that you must be aware of whenever you're in the city. And leads, of course, to the season in the summer known as the White Nights, when it practically doesn't get dark at all. And again, just to finish my trio of Helen Dunmore quotes, here she is writing about that season in June. Quote, Night is as brief as the brush of a wing, only an hour of yellow stars in a sky that never darkens beyond deep, tender blue. No one sleeps. Crowds surge out of cafes and wander the streets. 
not caring where they go as long as they can lift their faces and drink the light. It has been dark for so many months. And maybe then, just before we leave geography and weather behind, one mention of something else that the city is very prone to, and that's the damp and, more to the point, flooding. So there have been four or five major floods in the history of the city. The most notable one, perhaps the one in 1824, when the whole city was underwater. And that's become very well known, particularly because it was described in great detail in Alexander Pushkin's poem, The Bronze Horseman. More about that in a subsequent episode. But we can have cause for hope, because in 1989 a dam was built in the hope of preventing such destruction any time in the future. So far, so good. Turning then to the history of the city, I think it's fair to say that there probably can't be another city with such an eventful few hundred years. Bearing in mind that it only was founded in 1703, if you think about how it had that imperial magnificence, at least through the 18th century, all that unrest in the 19th century, leading, of course, eventually to the Russian Revolution in 1917, started right here in the city, and then the following Soviet era, and now, of course, the post-Soviet regeneration. All of that in such a short time, surely no other city can compete. Okay, so let's have a very quick skate through some of the key things that happened. So, founded, as I say, in 1703, and then 1709, a very key year, because that was the year, only six years on, when Peter decided that he would move the capital of Russia from Moscow to St. Petersburg. He had used his enormous personality and power to force through the building of the place. It's believed that up to 100,000 people died actually building it, because conditions were so terrible. He'd had very strong views on exactly how he wanted it to be. Peter had visited Western European cities like Amsterdam and London and Paris, and he was quite determined that Russia would have something just as classy and elegant as those lovely places. So it wasn't to be Russian in flavour. He brought in lots of Western architects. He forbade the wearing of traditional Russian clothes. People had to wear Western garments. Lists were published of what was and wasn't allowed. And he forced many of the civil servants from Moscow to move to St. Petersburg and really make the statement that, yes, this was to be the capital. So those are the beginnings. I think it would be fair to say that in the 18th century, the things that people most remember about St. Petersburg would be the rule of the two great empresses. That would be Peter's niece, Elizabeth, who ruled from 1741 to 62. And then she had no children, so her heir was her nephew, another Peter. And Elizabeth, who was very much the control freak, had picked out for him as a wife, a German princess. But what happened in the end was, after Elizabeth died, Peter ruled for really a very short time, was murdered, almost certainly with the knowledge of, possibly on the orders of, his wife. And she then became the empress and ruled as Catherine the Great from 1762 for another 34 years. So if one wanted to sum their rules up in a few words, I think we could say that Elizabeth ran a very dazzling court. She commissioned many of the city's most iconic buildings, designed by her favourite Italian architect, Rastrelli. She was a great patron of poets and artists and painters. She loved socialising. She gave massive masked balls. She hosted theatre performances, had her own theatre build, obviously, as you do and generally was running a court that was talked about throughout Europe. The rule of Catherine the Great has been described as the golden age of St. Petersburg. She too was a great show person, but she's also been described in one of the books I looked at as an enlightened despot. A despot, because she ruled pretty autocratically, 
didn't, for example, relax the rules on serfdom or anything, but enlightened because she took a great interest in things like the country's laws. She spent several years working very hard rewriting them. She too promoted the arts. She's also a great promoter of education. She started, for example, some girls' schools, which was almost unheard of. She kept up a correspondence with French philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot, hence the enlightened part of the enlightened despot. On to the 19th century then, which I think you could describe or summarise as sort of a to and fro between more autocracy and less autocracy. Some Tsars went one way, others went another. Key personalities would include Alexander I, the Tsar who defeated Napoleon, and Nicholas I, who presided over the defeat of Russia in the Crimean War. And very significantly, with a modern eye, um, Alexander II, who tried to introduce reforms and was eventually murdered for his pains. So his son, Alexander III, then presided over a tightening of the powers of the Tsar, looking fearfully at what had happened to his father and feeling that he had to make things stricter again. He also presided over a resurgence in the idea of Russian style being important and leaving behind this idea that everything had to be done on the Western pattern. So when he decided to have a church built in memory of his father, the church on the spilled blood, built, you guessed it, exactly on the spot where his father had been murdered, he didn't go for the Baroque style that was becoming a norm for splendid cathedrals in the city. He reverted to the old Russian style, hence the fact that that church is that glorious riot of technicolour onion domes and generally looks very Russian. And then, of course, the very last emperor, Nicholas II, the last Romanov, the one who was to be removed during the Russian Revolution. Key dates then from the 19th century would be 1825, when there was something called the Decembrists Uprising. People demanding more democracy and greater freedom didn't end well because the perpetrators were generally either exiled or executed. 1861 is a key date. That's when Alexander II introduced the idea of freedom for the serfs although I've seen that described as a move which pleased nobody, because obviously the people who owned the serfs didn't like losing all that power. But actually, the serfs, although they were in theory free, didn't gain any land. So in many cases, they had no option but to stay put and continue working the land that they'd always worked. 1881, then, is the date of Alexander's murder. People who really were worried about his reforms and felt that everything was going too far got together and did away with him. And the late 1800s saw the arrival of hundreds of thousands of people from the countryside into the city and the growth of St. Petersburg as a modern city and accompanying that, the rise of poverty and squalor, which led, of course, to unrest. 1905, such was the political unrest that it had culminated eventually in a march to the Winter Palace. Nicholas wasn't actually there at the time, but the guards were there and they panicked and opened fire and in what became known as Bloody Sunday, over a thousand people were killed, either by gunshot or because they were trampled to death. A manifesto followed, which promised a Duma, a parliament, promised more civil rights, but this wasn't really acted upon as fully as people wanted and the frustration over that, plus the terrible conditions which the city had to endure in World War I, led in the end, in February 2017, to another day when crowds marched to the Winter Palace. The final spark was the bread shortage. The demands were for peace, for an end to autocracy. Nicholas ordered the troops to fire on the demonstration, but many of them refused, and that really was the beginning of the revolution. The Bolsheviks proclaimed a provisional government. Lenin arrived back from exile. 
the Winter Palace was stormed by the guards, the Romanovs were exiled, taken away, and then a year later, as you probably know, shot in July 1918. The Bolsheviks relocated the capital to Moscow. They were really taking control now. And then, of course, the Soviet era began. At its harshest, under Stalin... And then perhaps the most terrible episode of all, the siege of the city of Leningrad, renamed now, of course, no longer St. Petersburg, during World War II, when the Germans surrounded the city and decided, rather than defeating it by fighting, to cut off food supplies and starve the people to death. The siege lasted 900 days. Several hundred thousand people did die. And I think it's generally agreed that of all the terrible things that have happened in St. Petersburg, that probably was the most devastating of all. In the 1950s, though, certainly up until the death of Stalin in 1953, very strict control continued. But then there was the beginning of a thaw, some loosening of control, culminating in the end in the heady days of Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s, when, of course, eventually in 1991, communism collapsed and the Soviet Union was broken up. Leningrad at that point then was renamed St. Petersburg. Since then, there's been the gradual reshifting of power. Many people would refer to that as the rise of the oligarchs. And certainly one person we have to mention, a son of the city, one Vladimir Putin, who'd worked in Leningrad and Moscow and East Germany and came back in 1990 to get involved in local politics, ending up on New Year's Eve 1999 being appointed as acting president on the resignation of Boris Yeltsin. And of course, at the time of recording anyway, he's been there ever since, having extended his right to rule by various ways, which I don't quite understand, but which seem quite determined. So, when you're in St. Petersburg today, the city of tourism and Zara and Starbucks and all the rest of it, I think it's always evident that really those very different historical periods are just under the surface. To end then, a quick rundown of proposed episodes. So the next one, episode two, going to start, where else, but with Peter the Great, a little biography of that amazing man and the story of how he got the city built, followed by an episode called Peter's Legacy, when we're going to look at a very brief history of the 12 Romanov emperors and empresses who succeeded him, and look at some of his most characteristic buildings, the ones he supervised himself, the fortress, the cathedral of St. Peter and St. Paul, and of course his summer palace, Peterhof. While we're on palaces then for episode four, let's go out to the Catherine Palace. And that's a good moment to talk about the lives of the three empresses most closely connected with it. That will be Catherine I, who was the wife of Peter the Great, and who planned, would you believe, the castle as a surprise for her husband. She had it built, as it were, behind his back and surprised him with it one day. And he was quite grumpy on many occasions, but he professed himself to be very delighted and amazed and said that she'd done a good thing. Then the other two empresses would be the Empress Elizabeth and Catherine the Great, both of whom lived in the Catherine Palace and made their mark there in various ways. Some quite nice stories about them, highlighting their rather eccentric personalities. So we'll enjoy those in episode four. A couple of episodes then about the backbone of the city. So starting with Nevsky Prospect and then moving on in episode six to the Palace Embankment a few bits and pieces about the buildings to be found in those two places, some quotes from travellers and writers about what they thought about it when they went. And then for episode seven, going to cover the Alexander Palace, mainly in its context as a family home for the Romanov emperors, or some of them at least. 
some nice descriptions, for example, of Catherine the Great educating her grandsons there. And particularly, I wanted to focus on the period when Nicholas II and Alexandra lived there before their exile with their daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia, and their son, the Tsarevich Alexei. Continuing their story in episode 8, I'm going to call that one Fabergé to Rasputin. Good excuse to go to two more palaces in St. Petersburg itself for particular reasons. So the Shuvalov Palace is these days the Fabergé Museum, so a place to see all sorts of treasures, but particularly a collection of Fabergé eggs, which were the bejeweled treasures that the last Romanovs gave to each other, particularly at Easter. So they're a nice symbol of the sort of decadence and wealth with, with which they surrounded themselves. And then to contrast with that, we can go off to the Yusupov Palace, which is known particularly to non-Russians as the palace in which Grigory Rasputin met his end. He was murdered there. And so that's a good moment to recount his story and explain his part in the downfall of the Romanov family. So then an episode on the revolutions, a little bit of history, some ideas about places where you can go and look for traces of it in today's St. Petersburg, followed then by an episode on Soviet Leningrad. Again, a little bit of history and something about places like the Trubetsky Prison and the State Museum of Political History, where you can learn a lot about the Soviet era. And also a mention of the flat in which the poet Anna Akhmatova lived. You can go and look round that today as well. And that really shows you the conditions in which many people lived during the Soviet period. Have a glance too at other things in the city. So some of the metro stations that were built by the Soviets. And then we can have a little bit of fun by visiting places like the Soviet Arcade Games Museum and one or two Soviet-style restaurants, which are there for nostalgic reasons, really. And I'll tell you about some of the things on the menu. And of course, we must mention the Donut Cafe, which is the most Soviet institution in the whole of the city. More about that later. Episode 11 will be devoted to the siege. So again, a little bit more of what happened and why. And some very moving extracts from a book called The Diary of Lena Mukina. She was a 15-year-old who lived through the siege and wrote very graphically about the terrible conditions that she and her family had to endure. We'll pop out as well to the monument to the heroic defenders of Leningrad, built, I think, about 15 years after the siege in memory of all the victims. A very moving place to visit. And then several episodes on the arts, starting with music, so some biographies of composers like Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich and some detail about what they got up to in the city, and some information about places you can visit today, the Mariinsky Theatre and the Shostakovich Concert Hall and so on, if you want to enjoy today's music in St. Petersburg. And then a whole episode on ballet. Really, St. Petersburg's got to be the city for ballet, hasn't it? So we're going to go back and look at the origins of the ballet school, look too at the lives of some of the very famous stars who graced the stage in St. Petersburg, Nijinsky, Anna Pavlova, Nureyev, of course. And then we'll look too at the ballet impresario Sergei Diaghilev, who started his work here, but who then took his ballet russe particularly to Paris and made them famous all over the world. And the ballet episode's also a good moment for a biography and a few juicy details about a slightly less well-known dancer, Mathilde Kaczynska, who, as well as being a prima ballerina, was the mistress and muse of Nicholas II before his marriage. So it'll be interesting to just hear about that. Episode 14, going to think about art and architecture. 
So we can look at the various styles of the buildings, everything from the Baroque palaces early on to the Russian Revival style and Church of the Spilled Blood and the Art Nouveau from the turn of the 20th century and the very different buildings from the Soviet Stalinist period. Think about art in the context of churches as well. Talk a little bit about icons. And then, of course, we must, must, must go to the Hermitage. How to reduce that to a few lines? Well, I'll have a go. But I did want to mention particularly also the Russian Museum, which is the other big art gallery in St. Petersburg, with 400,000 exhibits, and really a history, a chronological history of Russian art from the 11th to the 21st century. So a really good place to learn about that. And to finish off with then, three episodes on literature. Going to devote a whole one to Pushkin, because he seems to be the citizen that the Russians themselves are proudest of. Plus he's very interesting. We can look at his dramatic life, his links to the Decembrists' uprising, his many periods of drunken debauchery, the way that he died in a duel. Have a quick look at his writing, so extracts from one or two things that he wrote, and a rundown of where you can find him in the city today where he went to school, the flat where he died, now set up as a museum, left exactly as it was the day that he died, and my personal favourite, the Pushkin Cafe on the Nevsky Prospect, where a large, life-size waxwork model sits in the window and greets you as you walk past the entrance into the cafe itself. Episode 16 then, three 19th century authors with lots to say about St Petersburg, Gogol and Dostoevsky, both of whom grew up there, and set many of their most famous works there. So we can wander around the city following the nose. Yes, you heard that correctly. The nose in Gogol's absurdist story. And we can go through the Senea Ploschad area, which Dostoevsky described so well, the rather seedy area in which he set novels like Crime and Punishment, and a quick trip to the Dostoevsky Museum. The third author for that episode will be Tolstoy, not so much a St. Petersburger, much more a Muscovite, but there are one or two extracts I wanted to read which tell you a little bit about magnificent balls in St. Petersburg. And then finally, an episode I'm going to call Finding Leningrad in Literature, with an excuse to focus on three authors from the Soviet period and see what they can tell us. The first one's the poet Anna Akhmatova. Her biographical details would have featured in an earlier episode, but I'd like to look a little bit at what she wrote. The second author actually isn't Russian. She's British, Helen Dunmore. We must look at the two novels that she wrote set in the city. The Siege, set obviously during the Siege of Leningrad, and Betrayal, set about 10 years later in 1950s Leningrad, with lots and lots of very telling details about life for ordinary people who were just trying to get on with their lives, but were living in constant fear that Soviet Russia often brought. And then the third author, a Russian emigre writer called Sergei Dovlatov, who published a short story collection called The Suitcase, which was all about looking back nostalgically and actually quite ironically, quite wittily, at life in Soviet Leningrad in the 1960s. So that will be it. I hope I've persuaded you that there really is a very rich and varied set of episodes to come. And before I leave you, I'd just like to read a few lines of a poem by Alexander Pushkin in which he expresses his love for St. Petersburg, but where he makes reference to really lots of different aspects, the splendour, the poverty, the excitement, the boredom, all those long, endless, freezing cold winters, and so on. So here we go, just to whet your appetite. City of splendour, city of poor, spirit of grace and servitude, heaven's vault of palest lime, boredom, granite, Bitter cold, still I miss you. 
Rather, for down your streets from time to time, one may spy a tiny foot, one may glimpse a lock of gold. So there we are, that was Pushkin, St. Petersburg. I hope very much that you'll join me then next week for episode two. And for the moment, I can tell you that I've been learning one or two words of Russian especially, so I can sign off by thanking you very much for listening. Spasibo and wishing you goodbye in Russian. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Dosvidanya. <laughs>